mercy that endures. Praise God. His mercy endures forever. If it had not been for the mercy of God, praise God, where would we be? But because of his mercy, because of his faithfulness. Hallelujah. Let's clap our hands and thank the Lord together. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. Thankful to be in the house of God tonight and appreciate everybody being here. And so very, very thankful. Last night we had a great time of prayer in the house of God. All of you that show up for family night on Monday nights. It's just, uh, I like it. I like the way that it flows, and I appreciate you when you can. I know that sometimes schedules and what have you, but <clears throat> I appreciate an, an effort to be here in the house of God for prayer. So thank you very, very much. Amen. Praise God. Nudge your neighbor and tell them prayer works. Hallelujah. Prayer works. And we need, we need it, and we need more of it. Praise God. So whatever effort it takes... Uh, to get here and be here for uh, 40, 45 minutes of prayer and then some special prayer at the end. It gives us an opportunity to connect and hear what prayer requests needs to be uh, given and made and what we need to pray about. So there's also that element as well. And it's good to see Brother Martin Fields here in the house of God uh, tonight. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Been praying for him. He's had a stay in the hospital, but we're thankful he's in the house of God tonight. Amen. Praise God. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter number 16 and verse number 29. We'll read verses 29 through verse 33. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse number 29. Amen. Praise God. If you're there, say amen. All right. Let's read together. And in the 30 and 8th year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab the son of Amri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Amri, reigned over Israel and Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him, and he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Wow, what a, what a, what a record there. He did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. I want to talk to you for a few moments here tonight on this subject, spiritual despair. Spiritual despair. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your goodness. We ask that you would direct us. We thank you for your word, and we, we're thankful for a depth of the Holy Ghost that we feel in the house of God tonight. Amen. We are appreciative of that. We ask that you would continue to guide us and direct us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. One of the great showdowns in all of the scripture, and there are many. David and Goliath is probably one that comes to mind, but this one probably ranks right up there, is the showdown between Elijah and the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is located about nine miles east of the Mediterranean Sea 
in the Carmel Mountain Range, which is in the northern part of Israel. It's also about 28 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. I've had the opportunity of standing on this mount. It is beautiful. It is a mountain. You go up, and if it's a clear day, you can actually see the sea, which makes Elijah and his servant looking for a cloud toward the sea make sense, and that it overlooks the Jezreel Valley. It is beautiful. Mount Carmel was a high place of worship to the false god of Baal and Asherah during the period of Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and 1st and 2nd Kings. It, as I've already noted, it has a spectacular view of the Jezreel Valley that is spread out before you. It's also known as the Valley of Armageddon. It's referred to in the book of Revelation in John's uh, writings in Revelation. So it's the Jezreel Valley, and then it's also noted as the Valley of Armageddon. This was a place of great, great victory on this mountain. There's some background that we probably should just take a moment of time to discuss. This showdown happened between the prophet Elijah and 450 prophets of Baal. It started, it started 100 years earlier when King Solomon sowed the seeds that would destroy Israel morally. Man, there's a message in that. Some things are started. You're, go, you're going to fight the battle. When you sow seeds to some things, you may think, well, I'm getting by with it, but at some point there's going to be a conflict. That's why the scripture is very clear when it says, let judgment begin in the house of God. Don't seed and sow seeds to things that you're going to have to have a fight with and a conflict later. Settle some things in the house of God every service that you have the opportunity. So these seeds were planted. They were planted by King Solomon. And he sowed those seeds. There were clear commandments that God had given to the Israelites. Solomon ignored those commandments and he married many foreign wives. These foreign wives worshipped false gods. And in order to honor them, Solomon built high places of worship all over Israel where these false gods could be worshipped. And 1 Kings chapter 11 recounts this tragic reality. As a result, the worship of false gods became rampant in the land. Because of the worship of false gods, God pronounced judgment on the nation of Israel and it was divided into two kingdoms after Solomon's death. Rehoboam, one of Solomon's sons, took the southern kingdom of Judah, which consisted of two tribes. Jeroboam, one of Solomon's officials, took the northern kingdom, which consisted of ten tribes. Because Jeroboam was afraid that many of his people would defect to Rehoboam's kingdom by going to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple, he introduced false gods into the northern tribes of Israel. He erected two golden calf altars at Bethel and Dan for his people to worship instead of going to the temple in Jerusalem, and he told his people that these golden calves were the gods that led them out of Egypt, and the people were led astray. 
I hope in 2023 there are people of God that have enough depth and understanding of the scripture that when somebody comes along and says something that's not right, that is false, there's enough depth in us to say, wait a minute, we're serving the one true living God. We're not going astray because of convenience. We're not going to worship false gods because of convenience, but we're going to serve the one true living God, and we're going to give him our worship and our praise, no matter what it costs us. So he developed these gods, and they worshiped them, and this was a major, major problem in the northern tribes. Several kings later after Solomon, and Rehoboam and Jeroboam, King Ahab, king of the northern kingdom, married a foreign wife named Jezebel who worshipped the false gods of Baal. Baal was a male god. Asherah was a female god. She promoted worship to these false gods by employing countless prophets of Baal and Asherah. There was a whole temple worship There were temple prostitutes, there were sacrifices, there were all kinds of things involved in this kind of worship that led the people astray. She supported them financially, she fed them at her royal table, and Mount Carmel was one of the key high places in Israel where the people worshipped Baal and worshipped Asherah. Baal and Asherah were the gods of the weather. This was connected to agriculture. In these ancient times, they would worship these gods thinking that they were connected to fertility, and the fertility was connected to the ground, and the ground is what produced the crops, and so this was all connected. And Mount Carmel was a place where they would do this worship. This was the reason God sent a drought And then later sent rain. By doing so, he showed that he was the true God of the weather. And he was was the true God of everything else. He's greater than Baal. He's greater than Asherah. And he's greater than any other figurine and form of idolatry. And he made a statement at this showdown. Thank God there was a prophet that was willing to say, I'm going to take a stand. I'm not going to let true worship, I'm not going to let it slide into oblivion. But I'm going to stand and lift up my voice and say, I serve the one true living God. And I'm willing to fight for it. Hallelujah. Come on, church. We need a church that's willing to fight for worship. Willing to fight against false worship and idolatry. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. And so the prophet was willing to make a stand. And these these practices, this worship, Baal came from the Canaanite nations God drove out because of their extreme wickedness and now because of kings that were so disconnected and foreign relationships that they had created, they brought back in the very thing that was driven out before them in the beginning. My, 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 my. We must never, ever forget where God has brought us from. We must never become apathetic 
about the pit that God picked us out of. We must never, ever forget the miry clay and dysfunction that God brought us out of. Don't become tired and apathetic. Just go back and grab with strength. God, you brought me out with a mighty hand, and you've done a great work in my life, and I'm not going back to the weak and beggarly elements of the world. I'm running to the house of God. Praise God. Anybody have a testimony tonight in the house of God? Hallelujah, hallelujah. That's a source of great strength. You go back and you start reflecting about what God has done. This was a showdown between two opinions. Elijah said, how long are you going to halt between two opinions? Because of of Ahab's great sin, God sent a severe drought over all the land. And there's so many little side trails that you could run off here. If you get apathetic and we're not praising and worshiping God and letting God know that we're in this thing 100%, God will send a drought our way. I said, God will send a drought our way. We've got a responsibility to make sure the rain's still falling. Ahab's attitude and his false worship and his weakness wickedness and his connection to the world and his carnality led to God saying there's going to be a drought around here. We must never have a drought in the house of God. Holy Ghost has got to constantly be being poured out. Praise God. Hallelujah. We need altars that are full. Let there be rain that falls. So Elijah the Tishbite Went to Ahab and he said, as the Lord of God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Takes a lot of guts to walk into the palace of the king and say, it's not going to rain. Maybe Ahab looked at him and thought, well, who are you and who do you think you are? And he kind of discounted the message. But when it didn't rain for three years... He realized there was something to what the prophet was saying. After three years had ended, Elijah confronted Ahab and he promised that God would send rain. He steps back into Ahab's courthouse and showed himself there because the famine was severe. And Ahab, when he sees Elijah, he says, is it you? You troubler of Israel. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. I'm not the one that, isn't it interesting? When people get off track and they get into their own carnality, they'll always blame their failures on either you or somebody else. But they never take responsibility. Ahab is saying it's Elijah's fault because there's famine in the land, taking no responsibility for his own actions. And so Elijah said to Ahab, Gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah for a total of 850 who eat at 
Jezebel's table. She was financing 850 worshipers of Baal at her table. And so they gathered all the people. Ahab sent to all the people of Israel. He gathered them all together. And Elijah said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And so there was a great contest here on Mount Carmel with all of these prophets. And the stipulations to this conflict and contest was that some bulls would be given one bull for themselves and cut in pieces and laid on the wood, no fire to it. And then he would, repair, he would prepare another bull and he would prepare his own altar. No wood, no fire put to it. And then you call on the name of your God and then I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said it is well spoken. And so the false prophets and Baal and Asherah, they went first and they worshipped and nothing happened. They yelled and there was no response. Oh, Baal, answer us, they said. But there was no voice and nobody answered. They limped around the altar that they had made. And Elijah looked at this for a while and then he started mocking them. He said, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep. He must be awakened. And so they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, which was the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid any attention. Isn't that much like the world? Praise God. The gods of this world are not going to answer you. They're not going to be there for you. They're not going to redeem you. And they're not going to save you. But there is a God that will listen to you, will respond to you, will redeem you, and will save you. So Elijah takes his turn. He gathered all the people together. And he took 12 stones, according to the tribes of the sons of Jacob, who were identified as Israel. And he built an altar. He made a trench around the altar. This is during famine, so water is a scarcity. One foot deep by one foot wide. He put wood in order. He cut the bull in pieces. And he filled jars with water. And he poured it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with the water. He was, he was making a statement and he was making a point. The God's going to answer by fire. and We'll water this thing down so we, we will put it in the minds of people that this is an impossibility and it's not something that can be done, but I know a God that works in impossibilities. <laughs> and so with humanity, it's not possible, but with God, all things are possible. And so he filled the trenches. And then... He came near and he prayed a prayer, a very simple prayer. O oh Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, 
Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their face and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. God worked a mighty, powerful victory on the top of Mount Carmel. The forces that were arrayed was carnality and wickedness and idolatry and false worship against the one true living God that brought Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand, brought them across the Red Sea, brought them into the promised land, and there was a great conflict, and guess who won? It was God that wins because because God never loses a battle. God never loses a battle. <laughs> so Elijah said, gather up all those false prophets. And on the hill right below in the Kishon stream, he seized them. He let not one of them escape. And he brought them to the brook. And he killed them there. Afterward, God sent a massive rainstorm which brought a deluge of rain to Israel and ended the drought. This is the story where Elijah says to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of rushing rain. And so Ahab went to eat and drink and Elijah went to the top of Carmel and he started praying and he sent his servant to go look toward the sea, nine miles toward the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. And the servant came back and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again. And he said, go again seven times. You know, sometimes you just got to keep going back and looking. You can't give up the first time or the second time or the third time. There's some things you're praying about. Just because you don't get the answer the first time, that is a result of our thinking and our world that expects things instantaneously. It doesn't work that way with God. But you keep going back saying, God, I know that you got an answer for me. I know that you got a direction for me. And one of these times when I'm looking, I'm going to see a cloud about the size of a man hand. Elijah said, well, if you saw that, we better get out of here because God's fixing to do great things. You need to keep going back. Keep praying. Keep praying. Don't give up and keep looking for what God's going to do. He said, I'm weary. I'm tired. I'm telling you, keep praying that prayer. Don't ever give up. Keep staying persistent because God knows there's an answer. There's a blessing. There's rain that's going to come in the midst of a dry and thirsty land. Praise God. This is on the mountain of Carmel, a mountain of victory. Woo, somebody say victory. Amen. There was a, a miraculous thing that happened. So when Elijah went back to Ahab, Elijah said, you need to get in your chariot and your horses and you need to take off and you need to make your way back down the mountain and you need to get back to a place of safety in Jezreel. And the scripture said that Elijah gathered up his garments 
and ran. This is about 15 miles from the top of from the top of Carmel to Jezreel is about 15 miles. Ahab, you get in your chariot and your horse and you take off. But the scripture said Elijah gathered up his garment and took off running and he ended up beating King Ahab in his chariot with his horse to Jezreel. Now you say, how'd that happen? I have no clue, but God did a miraculous thing. He took a prophet by the name of Elijah and made him faster than a horse and a chariot so that he showed. Can you imagine? Here is Ahab thinking, you know what the man of God told me all of these things and God's done all this stuff and he told me to get in my chariot and take off and Ahab's flying to Jezreel and when he gets to the entrance of of Jezreel, guess who's waiting for him? Elijah's waiting for him. Isn't, isn't that just like God to say, I'm some trust in chariots and horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Ahab, you think you're in control, but you're not in control. The things that you trust in are things that are untrustworthy. God's the one that is stronger and more powerful and sovereign. Ooh, you talk about a victory on the mountain where God's fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice. And then he does these amazing things with Elijah. I mean, you talk about fast. I mean, that's, that's pretty crazy. How fast can a horse? Look that up real fast. You could even ask. Well, you don't, you don't have Apple, but maybe if you ask Siri. How fast can a horse run? What is the speed of a horse? And Elijah was running faster than the horse. And he arrives at the entrance of Jezreel, the location before Ahab gets there. Amen. I mean, these are confidence-building things, right? A horse can run maximum speed 55 miles. I mean, give me, can you imagine driving 50 miles an hour down the freeway? And here's this guy, whoa, comes flying by you. <laughs> what in the world is that? That's the prophet. The prophets. He's going where God told him to go. Praise God. And so he's waiting for Ahab. God's done a great victory. This is a mountaintop experience of victory. And then there's a mountain of despair that follows. That's what I'm preaching about here tonight, is spiritual despair. Because... When Ahab tells Jezebel of Elijah's exploits, she becomes enraged and she declares against Elijah, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, may the gods take my life if I have not taken yours by this time tomorrow. After all of these victorious things that Elijah has accomplished, Scripture said when he heard Jezebel's words, he was afraid. He got up and he fled for his life. And that leads us to, to ponder something. How powerful must have Jezebel been? You know what that tells me? That tells me Ahab was running nothing. He was a figurehead. And the real power resided in Jezebel because Elijah had no problems face walking right into the courtyard of Ahab. But when Jezebel sends out a threat, Elijah takes off 
fearing for his life. When I studied starting, when I started studying this, this journey was not a short one. I didn't realize this. I've been to Israel twice. I've read these scriptures, but I never thought geographically about what all this meant until I, until I started studying this. He traveled from Jezreel in the valley that is nearby Mount Carmel to the southern city of Beersheba, which is a distance of about 100 miles. And this is ancient times. There's, there's not, this is walking or maybe riding some on a donkey, but it's a hundred mile trek. And to today's reader, that, that may not seem like a whole lot, but it's an enormous undertaking in a world of foot travel. And Elijah is fearful for his life. He's leaving this mountaintop experience of victory, and he's going a hundred miles to Beersheba, and when he arrives there, he leaves his servant, and he goes another day's journey into the wilderness, and there he implores God and argues with God about the futility of life, and in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse number 4, this is what he said. He sat down under a tree, requested that he would die, and he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. I'm here preaching to you tonight because I know there can be moments of mountaintop experience and, and victory where everything is happening and fire is falling from heaven and then the next day the enemy can come in and try to wrestle with our mentality and with our minds that can turn us from feeling like we're on the mountaintop of victory and now we're on the mountaintop of despair. I want to preach some faith into you. You're not alone. You're not by yourself. This is not uncommon. It is something every single one of us goes through and faces. Praise God. But I want to say something here tonight that whether you're on the mountain of victory or on the mountain of despair, there is still a God that knows exactly where you are. He asked God to kill him. God aroused him, fed him, and urged him to continue on his journey. And so he's not finished with the journey. He's already gone 100 miles to Beersheba, which is, which is if, if you're looking like north and south, the northern part of Israel is where Mount Carmel is. Beersheba is in the south. And then if you, Beersheba is a desolate place. It is a desert place. It is the place where you can go today and you can see Abraham's well. It's a very old well, but it is in the southern portion of Israel where there is, is, is nothing. When you're in Beersheba, you're wondering, this is what people talk about when they talk about the promised land. This is a desolate, dry, dusty place. If you continue going south, you're making your way down into the Gulf region where Mount Horeb is or some 
believe that Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb are the same. This is another 12-day journey to get to Mount Horeb. And so Elijah is going. He goes 40 days and 40 nights. It takes him 40 days and 40 nights to go 12 days journey. So it's a difficult trek. And when he is there, he gets to Mount Horeb. And he's in this place. He has gone from the mountain of victory to the mountain of despair. He is on the mountain in Mount Horeb. And God asks him a question. God asks him a question. He, is, he has gone 100 miles. He's gone another 12 days journey to get where he is. He's running from a wicked, wicked woman. And God asks him this question. Elijah what are you doing? What are you doing here? And God says, go. Stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. So he goes out the cave. There are many, many interesting pictures with Elijah and his, his face is covered and he's standing at the edge of the cave. And this has been very interesting to theologians and preachers and teachers for a long, long time because God reveals himself in a manner that's different from the ways in which he reveals himself to others. An appearance, a manifestation of God to humanity was called a theophany. A moment where the sovereign God physically interacts with the human realm. And so, in the Old Testament, he interacts with humans in dreams. Abraham had a dream. Jacob had a dream. He interacts in human form. He appears to Abraham as a man. He appears to Gideon. He appears in fire and smoke to Moses at Sinai in the Exodus. And then... In this passage of scripture, he appears in a different way. He comes in a great wind in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse number 11, but God was not in the wind. Praise God. Musicians come, singers come if you would. He's not in the wind. There's an earthquake, but he's not in the earthquake. There's a fire, but he's not in the fire. And then this is what has puzzled theologians for millennia. Because the Hebrew is hard to translate, and so different translations translate it different ways. The NRSV says there was a sound of sheer silence. The NASB says it was a sound of gentle blowing. The NIV says it's a gentle whisper. And of course, the King James Version says it was a still small voice. So what was it? Was it silence? Was it a whisper? Was it a gentle wind? Was it a voice? Whatever it was, it got... Elijah's attention and the voice asked him Elijah what are you doing here 
And so Elijah leaves the top of the mountain of despair and he leaves the wilderness and he returns to Israel and he passes by a man by the name of Elisha plowing in the field because God still has work for Elijah to do. There will be times of great victory and times of despair. Elijah experiences it in this passage of Scripture. But he had a prophetic call of God on his life. And so because of that prophetic call of God on his life, God has to break through his despair to remind him, Elijah, I called you. I've established you. My anointing is upon you. You have done great things. There have been miracles that have proceeded out of you. There have been victories because you have been available to what I'm wanting to do in your life. There is a calling of God on your life. I'm preaching to you in the house of God here. You may have great victories today, tomorrow. You may have moments of despair, but know this. There's a call of God on your life. God is not finished with you. He's not walking away from you. Just because it feels like you're in the desert. You're not on the mountain where the fire is falling, but you're in the desert where it's dusty and there is no voice and there is no response. There's still a call of God on your life. There is still work to do. It doesn't matter what you feel like. You know what to do is right and so you keep walking. You keep trusting in God. You keep believing in God you say to the enemy I am called of God God called me out he gave me a testimony and he's called me to this time who are you great mountain praise God praise God praise God you may be in despair but I'm coming to preach to you tonight that there is a God that is greater than the despair greater than the turmoil Elijah, at one point, he says, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one. And God says, no, there's a whole lot more that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, there's other people that are having struggles and having difficulties. Don't isolate yourself off and think you're the only one that's having difficulties or struggles. Every single one of us has struggles. But God's still faithful. God still responds to us. He's still there in the silence when nothing is happening. When you praise him, nothing happens. When you pray... Nothing happened. God's still there. Hallelujah. Come on, let's stand to our feet and lift up our hands and pray here in the house of God tonight. God, you're a God of victory. Hallelujah. Come on, let's lift up our voice and praise him just for a moment right here. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. If you're on the top of Mount Victory, could you just for a moment pray for people that are at Mount Horeb when they feel like they're on the mountain of despair? Isn't that fascinating? It's fascinating because we typically talk about mountaintop experiences and the valley being the place where you're in despair. But in this case, it's from mountain to mountain. It's from victory to despair, and you're still on the mountain. Guess what? There's somebody that's greater than the mountain. 
<laughs> Praise God. I said there's somebody that's greater than the mountain of victory or the mountain of despair. That's what you got to hang on to. That's what you got to trust in. Praise God. Sometimes you pray, nothing happens, but just trust this. God knows where you are. He hasn't left you. He's not forsaking you, but he's going to walk with you. God, you're the God of victory, and you're also the God. 